It has been said that we Maritimers drink a lot. However, the generations of Maritimers that came before us would likely find that statement pretty funny and our drinking awfully quaint. For centuries in the Maritimes, drinking hard liquor was an everyday activity at home, at work, and at all hours of the day on a scale that many of us would find shocking. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. The favorite drink of Maritimers at this time, which was long before government regulations and liquor stores, was rum. And back then, rum wasn't the weak little old 40% alcohol by volume that sold in liquor stores today. Back then, it was closer to 60 or even 70% in strength. Rum shaped the society and the history of the Maritimes. Rum is thought to have been first invented in the plantations in the West Indies in the 1600s. The first rum was made by accident. It was the result of little more than yeast spores settling in leftover cane juices and molasses, which was left over from the sugarcane mills. Basically, rum was compost. It quickly became popular amongst slaves in the sugarcane plantations. It was simply referred to as rumbulian, which meant great tumult, before being shortened by the English to simply rum. Sensing a money-making opportunity, a distilling industry appeared in the Caribbean soon after to refine, distill, and sell that compost into a more palatable drink. Rum first came to the Maritimes via New England, where, by the 1650s, businessmen were importing molasses and distilling it into their own crude rums. This American rum was vastly inferior to even the worst of the Caribbean rums, and one writer said, its greatest adherents were those who could not afford a choice. It was this vastly inferior rum which first made its way to the Maritimes. At a time when the quality of drinking water in the Maritimes was often suspect, especially in the cities, rum was considered a safer alternative to drinking water. In Nova Scotia, which at the time New Brunswick was still a part of, some of the enticements offered to attract settlers was the promise of 3.5 gallons of rum per year. That appears to be just a small amount of what was drank though, as the amount imported into Nova Scotia would equal out to something more like 12 gallons per person per year of rum. Just to put this in context, a study by the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse states that in terms of pure alcohol that's consumed per person per year, Newfoundland is the top drinking province in Canada at 9 litres of pure alcohol a year, with Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island coming in for second at 8 litres per person per year, and New Brunswick at 7.5 litres. Meanwhile, those early Nova Scotians slash New Brunswickers 
would drink a quantity of rum that would equal out to 30 liters of pure alcohol per year. So there's no question that the earlier generations of Maritimes that came before us could drink us all under the table. By the 1800s, the prevalence of rum in maritime society was at the point where it was, in effect, a cure-all. It was a medicine. Rum, mixed with choke cherry juices, was supposed to prevent a cold. And if that didn't prevent your cold, well, the prescription was a hot toddy, which was mostly rum. Some of the things rum was supposed to cure were a bit more alarming. So, live eels were put in jugs of rum, and the resulting concoction was drank not only to cure arthritis, but it was also supposed to cure alcoholism. Unlike many things at the time, rum was not exclusively for men. Women were not only permitted, but were actually encouraged to drink rum for their health, and especially during pregnancy. Having troubles nursing? Drink rum. Morning sickness? Drink rum. Menstruation pains? Drink rum. It appears that in about 20% of the court cases for drunkenness in the 1800s, which was by far the largest crime in the Maritimes, the accused were women. Rum wasn't considered to be simply a recreational activity at the time. It was an all-day, everyday activity. It was a way of life. Breakfast in both the upper classes and the working classes would often begin with what was called an antifogmatic or simply a morning, which meant a tumbler of rum, much in the same way that as our breakfast often begins with a coffee. Rum was a social activity. It was considered rude to have a guest over into one's home and not offer them a tumbler of rum. By the same token, it was considered rude to be a guest and to not take that rum. This applied to all guests like professionals making house calls, including some which you may not expect, like doctors and priests who were making house calls. Indeed, at least one prominent St. John priest had to resign after developing a drinking problem, which he blamed on making too many house calls. Drinking rum was also something Maritimers would do on the job. The standard belief at the time was that drinking on the job was a matter of health and safety. It was actually considered unsafe to do work sober outdoors because alcohol was considered an internal antifreeze. So workplaces would have rum breaks, usually at 11am and 4pm, where workers would take a break and have a glass of rum. By the 1820s, Fredericton took its rum breaks so seriously that the city installed a bell to mark the time to stop and have a drink of rum during the workday. The bell sounded at 11am and 4pm to mark that it was time to take a break and to drink a tumbler of rum. After having their glass of rum, which remember was between 60 and 70% in strength, workers would then go back to work. Fredericton, at the time, was what a writer for the New Brunswick Reporter newspaper in 1846 called a small backwater of the empire, home to 4,200 people, which is about the size of the towns of Woodstock or Grand Falls today in New Brunswick, 
However, according to that reporter, Fredericton contains 26 taverns and about twice as many private hells for selling rum and carrying on the practice of seduction. And present are a vast number of drunkards. May heaven help us. Fredericton's ratio of bars to citizens was actually far less dramatic than St. John's, who according to the Synoptic Reporter in 1871 had a population of 28,805, which makes it only slightly larger than its suburbs of Quispam Cis today. And it was home to 275 bars. Fredericton's rum bill was not an anomaly. Work and rum were strongly linked. Workers would actually receive rum as part of their pay. Construction contracts would stipulate in writing that workers get rum, and how much. Workers would walk off the job if the rum ran out. Fishermen refused to go out to sea if there was no rum, believing that they would surely freeze. Commercial berry pickers, who were for the most part actually children, also received rum with their pay as well. In the 1840s, shipbuilding magnate Joseph Salter caused a great deal of outrage when he suggested employees on his Moncton Wharf actually work sober. We don't have concrete numbers on this, but Slater was concerned about the number of workplace injuries and accidents which were happening on his wharf. The workers in Salter went into negotiations on this unheard of proposition of working sober, and eventually they came to an agreement. If the workers would not drink on the job, they would only have to work 10 hour days instead of the then standard workday, which typically went from dawn to dusk. This radical suggestion of a workday being merely 10 hours long caused a lot of upset amongst the large industrialists who were worried that this outrageous idea might catch on. Salter also set up a library in the workshop for employees to read during their newly rum-free rum breaks, and this was Moncton's first library. Currently, our official Department of Health guidelines tell Canadians that men should only have two drinks per day, and women only one. Back in the 1800s, the government of New Brunswick recommended citizens only drink alcohol moderately. And then they went on to define moderate as half a pint a day. That's the equivalent of eight or nine shots of modern strength rum per person per day. If you're drinking so much that the government is stepping in to say, whoa, no, hold on guys, let's try and keep it to only nine drinks a day. There's bound to be some consequences. One consequence was the spring blowout, which was an annual event in which men who worked in the winter logging camps returned with the season's earnings and a large amount of money, and evidently a lot of thirst. In small logging towns such as Doketown, Newcastle, and Forest City, residents locked their doors and stayed off the streets to avoid the rampaging drunken lumberjacks. Coastal cities in the Maritimes, from Miramichi to Halifax, had additional troubles. It appears that the drunken lumberjacks especially did not get along with drunken sailors, and large-scale riots and brawls were not at all uncommon on their waterfronts. The financial cost of rum was a concern, 
On one hand, the government of New Brunswick proudly boasted that it profited the most per capita out of anywhere in the country off of alcohol taxes. However, the flip side of this was that rum was not infrequently the highest charge on grocery bills, with food and supplies for one family seemingly being lower priorities. There is almost certainly a hidden toll that is difficult to track in old records and likely went unreported. It was only whispered about at the time, but it was almost certainly occurred. Domestic violence and abuse targeting women and children. It's important again to emphasize the sheer scale of drinking in the Maritimes at the time. The strength of the rum was at 70%. People started the day with breakfast rum. They had rum breaks at work instead of coffee breaks. They drank rum whenever a guest visited. And the recommended moderate levels of drinking for an average person was nine shots of hard liquor a day. And that was moderate. With alcohol that pervasive, and all the problems that came with it, efforts began to be made to just straight up ban drinking. Indeed, by that time, in growing swaths of the public imagination, rum was taking on a more negative connotation. A wider rethinking of the proper place and time for drinking was going on. And moderation became more heavily favored by the public with total abstinence becoming more and more highly regarded. This is quite the contrast from mere decades before when abstinence from alcohol was unheard of to the point it was considered some sort of mental disease, or at least a sign of a weak person. This is the beginning of the temperance movement. While the temperance movement seems to be remembered today for American extremists like Carrie Nation, who would smash casks of rum with her hatchet in bars, that's an unfair and it's a heavily biased take on the group's principles and track record. In the Maritimes, the Temperance Movement was a multifaceted organization. It was focused on social welfare, lots of different branches of it, and it actually began right here in the Maritimes. The first ever Temperance Society chapter in North America started in rural Nova Scotia in West River, Pictou County in 1827, and it spread remarkably quickly which kind of shows how people had been desiring this. New Brunswick's branch of the movement was called the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, or the WCTU, and it fought for education, it fought for women to have the vote, they fought for workplace safety, and while they did deal with drinking, their efforts were more focused on moderating drinking rather than outright banning it. Later prohibition movements to ban alcohol were not something which were imposed by governments to stop public drinking, they were actually quite the opposite. If anything, the government was dragging its heels in the face of public pressure to do something about drinking because they brought in such a vast amount of money into government coffers. For years, members of the public fought to get alcohol banned and provincial governments, worried about that loss of vast amounts of revenue from drinking, were reluctant to do anything about it. The reasons are best described as simply changing tastes. The new nation of Canada was growing up, and the general public's drinking began to go down on its own. It may be difficult to believe, but what it had recently been a radical idea that drinking had a proper time and place, as opposed to an all-day, everyday thing, began to take hold. The public was getting exhausted and disgusted with living every spring in fear due to a rampaging drunken lumberjack blowout. 
the consequences of poverty and alcoholism were becoming more obvious, and the public was becoming more aware. New Brunswick banned alcohol in 1855. Lasted all of seven months. The government failed to enforce the ban, and recoiling in shock at the massive drop in government revenue, quickly abandoned the effort altogether. Meanwhile, in Nova Scotia, in each year's session of the legislature since the 1830s, an attempt was made to ban alcohol. After a robust debate, every year they would fail to be passed, but often not falling short by many votes. As the years passed, temperance grew ever more popular, and a national referendum took place in 1898, asking Canadians all across the country if they wanted to ban alcohol. A slim majority of Canadians voted in favour of banning all alcohol in Canada, by a margin of 51% wanting to ban it, to 49% wanting to keep it legal. The vote tally actually masked some deeper divisions between English Canada, which is more against drinking, and Quebec, which had voted 82% in favour of drinking. In the Maritimes, 72% of New Brunswickers, 87% of Nova Scotians, 89% of Prince Edward Islanders voted in favour of banning alcohol. Despite the referendum result being in favour of banning alcohol, the federal government, under Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier, who you can currently find on your $5 bill, chose not to act on the results, fearing that it would tear the young country apart. Instead of taking action, the federal government allowed municipalities and provinces to make their own decisions on whether or not they wanted to ban drinking. Emboldened by the national referendum results and the new power to actually do something about the drinking, Prohibition's time had come to the Maritimes. Cities in the Maritimes, exhausted by the drinking and the consequences that came with it, and pushed by the temperance movement, acted quickly by the year 1900, of the 40 municipalities in the Maritimes, 26 had banned drinking. Prince Edward Island took things further. In 1901, alcohol was banned, and that ban would last till 1948. New Brunswick's government brought the question of banning drinking to the people to be voted on in a province-wide referendum in 1920. Two-thirds of the public voted in favor of banning alcohol. Seemingly surprised by the results, or perhaps alarmed by the drop in revenue in government coffers, the Liberal government of the day almost immediately called a second referendum to clarify the results. Okay, did New Brunswickers actually want to ban all alcohol, or is drinking beer and wine still cool? The second referendum resulted in another landslide in favor of banning beer and wine. One year after, in 1921, Nova Scotia passed its own law banning alcohol. Prohibition had come to the Maritimes. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.